independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our Green Dreamer planners that you can check out at greendreamer.com shop, as well as our listener patrons. Thank you so much for supporting this independent show starting at $2 per month by going to greendreamer.com support, sharing your favorite episodes with friends, or leaving me a rating and review in the podcast app. I read them all, they warm my heart, they keep me going, and I really, really appreciate your support. So thank you so much. And when you think of plastic bottled water, Actually, the water is virtually free. What you're buying is the plastic because the water is like such a a smaller amount of cost over the entire object that you're buying. So it, it really is a plastic business. That was Pierre Paslier, the co-founder of Notpla, which is an innovative, environmentally conscious packaging startup, creating things like edible water packets made of seaweed. If you've heard about marathons or major events offering these little edible sachets of water or beverages as an alternative to single-use plastic bottled beverages, well, chances are that originated from Notpla, so you're going to hear from the visionary behind this today. Stay tuned as we're about to explore how Pierre came to develop and fine-tune his idea to package drinks in edible packets, the differences between bioplastics requiring industrial composting compared to ones that readily biodegrade in the soil or are even edible, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. There's been quite a few moments where I realized how unsustainable our lifestyle was, But there was one particular moment early in my professional career when I was working for the cosmetic industry, specifically launching new packaging, typically launching products like cream jars or uh, toiletry. And uh, you would go to the factory and you would see all of those bottles and jars being filled at incredible speed. And I think that was one shocking moment for me to realize how quickly we make these things and how then they go somewhere in the world. But the sheer amount of plastic that was produced was kind of frightening. And I think that's something that is staying with me very strongly when we are developing those alternative solutions, remembering how much we're producing. So you created OHO first and foremost to challenge your status quo with plastic bottled water and beverages. There are definitely other applications that you're working on with Notpla as well, but let's first start with the beverage bottles. So what are our current inefficiencies of making single-use plastic water bottles that just make their continued use not make any sense? 
So I think one of the stats that was shocking when we started, when we did a bit of research, is that about 30% of plastic bottles get used in less than five minutes. And yet the very material we're using for that job is indestructible. People say it takes 700 years, but it never really breaks down completely. It just fragments into smaller and smaller pieces. So this huge gap between how long we use things and how long they last in the environment for is just making no sense. And I think that when you look at nature, nature is doing all of these things so well. So anything that needs to last only lasts for the amount of time that makes sense for the cycle. And that was a big inspiration point for us when we started this. And to add on top of that, I believe it takes quite a lot of water to even make the plastic packaging as well, right? So when we're thinking about we're buying bottled water, but then it already it, it already used up so much water to even produce that plastic packaging to begin with. That's right. It very much depends on, on uh, who's producing, but it's between two and five liters per liter of bottled water. So before you've taken your first sip, you've already drunk twice the amount you just purchased. And, and it just shows how hidden all of those issues are to the consumer and how hard it is to move away from these problems because they are built into the supply chain and into the the whole manufacturing of those objects. And and when you think of plastic bottled water, actually the water is virtually free. What you're buying is the plastic because the water is like such a, a smaller amount of cost over the entire object that you're buying. So it, it really is a plastic business. Wow. That's a really powerful shift in perspective is when people are buying plastic bottled water, they're not really buying water. They're buying the plastic packaging. But I mean, even with that in mind, why is virgin plastic so cheap to begin with? Because with all of the energy that's put into extracting and making the plastic, it still feels like it ends up being so cheap. There's a few reasons that led us to the situation we're in. First of all, plastic is kind of a byproduct of the fossil fuel energy industry. So it was always something that was making sense to use for something else. And on top of that, the fossil fuel industry and the plastic industry have benefited from about 70 years of hardcore R&D all around the world for making all of these processes more efficient and cheaper. So it's really created a golden standard that is very, very hard to compete with. But the thing is, behind all of this R&D, it's mainly subsidies from governments and universities. And all of this has been paid for by society to advance those technologies. So we've made a product that is very cheap, but we've kind of paid the cost on the side. Um, So that's why it's very hard to compete with today's raw material cost of, of plastic. But I think that when you look at actually the energy and the work that you need to get from crude oil to plastic. And when you can apply this kind of comparison with extracting natural extracts from natural materials, you see how much easier it is to do that with natural materials. So you can understand how if we were applying the same amount of R&D and subsidies into those things, we would have something that would be very cheap as well. For our listener who may not be familiar with OHO, can you talk about what it is, how it's made, and how you learned from nature through biomimicry and the design? Yeah, so OHO is a flexible packaging 
that can encapsulate water or other beverages or even sauces and different types of liquids. It's actually quite weird looking. So it's transparent. <laughs> it looks a bit like a bubble. And it's something that clearly should belong more to the world of fruits and vegetables than to the world of bottles and jars. And that was very intentional from mm -hmm. our side. When, when we decided to start this project, my co-founder and I were studying a master's in Imperial College and London, Royal College of Art in London. And we wanted to think of other ways to transport water. And we were very keen on trying to replicate what nature does so well in, in, in like, uh, fruit and vegetables and membranes. And, and so after playing around with lots of natural materials from tapioca seeds, which are used for bubble tea or hydrogels or cellulose, we ended up discovering about seaweed extracts that were actually used for making fake caviar, the small like fish flavored like bowls that you can get for really cheap for Christmas. And this is actually a very old technology from like the 1930s developed at the beginning by Unilever for making a food product. And it's been kind of like sitting on the food side for very long, but we decided to see how we could push it to become a packaging. Mm -hmm. And I think from those first prototypes, we saw that there was this jelly material that we could make thinner and stronger and we start, we could start to encapsulate water. And that was the starting point of, of thinking that this could have actually an application in packaging, not just in food. But the fact that it was a food product to start with meant that we had created an edible packaging. And I think that this is something that we hadn't really anticipated, but resonated very much so with people. Because today, when you think of packaging, it's a waste. It's something that is going to end up like being trashed or littered. It's something that is made of non-natural materials. So to think that you could actually eat the packaging was something that was really powerful as a, as a concept and therefore uh, got us a lot of attention. And at that point, we hadn't really thought of doing this as a, as a startup, as a company. But seeing the, the, the wild amount of interest we got from the first few viral videos, getting a few million views on YouTube and so on, we were like, wow, this should really be something that we push like full time. And uh, that's when we decided to, to start the company. I was going to say what stood out to me is when you first developed this idea and played around with it, you made your experiments open to the public as creative commons. And it sparked a trend where people around the world were making their own kind of circular packets and sharing their experiments on social media as well. I feel like sometimes when people are innovating something, they can be very closed off, competitive and not open to sharing what they're working on and their learning lessons. So what inspired you to make your invention really open to the public to replicate? And what did you learn as a result of that? I think there was one element which was very interesting for us about the scale of manufacturing. And when we started, we were able to make some of those early prototypes in our kitchen with a few kind of like powders we bought from some website somewhere. And we didn't really need too much machinery or too much kind of like technology. Obviously, this doesn't apply to a, a plastic bottle. You can't just spend your Sunday afternoon trying to make a plastic <laughs> bottle, but you could spend your Sunday afternoon trying to kind of like create an OHO. And so I think that this idea that the, the manufacturing of one unit is something that you could relate to was also really powerful. 
and we wanted to kind of like show how different a solution could be. And I think when, when you need alternatives to a problem like the plastic pollution problem, you need to reframe the, 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 the whole kind of situation. And by having something that was edible that you could make yourself, it was just like making people think that there's lots of other ways we could be doing this. And I think that was something we were really keen to, to explore. Just out of curiosity, is there any nutritional value in that seaweed extract? Actually, that's a really good question. There is no calories. So it means that what you eat doesn't provide any nutrients or any energy. Actually, it's a source of fibers. So it's a bit like when you eat fruits or vegetables, that's really good for digestion because those things are usually kind of like lacking in our Western uh, diets. But that being said, it doesn't give you any energy on its kind of like minimal form. So then we could, of course, add things in the membrane. Um, we've explored that with, for example, running events, adding some salt or some sugar or some kind of like proteins. But the seaweed extract on their own don't have any energy value. Right. But the fiber part is still good because a lot of people aren't getting enough fiber in their diets. Exactly. And also with the seaweed, I'm curious, is the seaweed typically farmed at a large scale for the purpose of being harvested or are they wild harvested? And if they're farmed, how do we ensure that they won't end up causing many of the issues that monoculture farms on land have caused, such as compromising wildlife biodiversity, increasing chemical pollutants and so forth? That's a very good question. And actually, this is something that when we started, we were very new to the whole seaweed industry. So uh, we learned a lot. Actually, in the world, most of seaweed extracts are farmed, or like most of seaweed gets farmed. But the particular types of seaweed that we use is mostly harvested. Uh, and it's just because it's so abundant. So some of the seaweed that we use grow up to a meter per day. It's wow. one of the fastest growing organisms on this planet. And so in the areas where there are uh, factories that are extracting those hydrocolloids, those extracts from seaweed, they just use the local available seaweed. They don't have to go and farm some extra because there is just so much. And I think that this is something that was really important for us to use a natural resource that would be so abundant that at scale, we wouldn't kind of like create a scarcity problem. On top of that, seaweed has a few added benefits. For example, one of the things that really matters to us is that it doesn't compete with food crops. You hear a lot about, for example, PLA, which is a, a bioplastic that is made from cornstarch. But obviously, if we start just farming corn for making PLA, we're just diverting food away from certain geographies. And on top of that, because seaweed is not uh, land-based agriculture, it doesn't use any fresh water and it doesn't use any fertilizer. So it just grows on its own. So that's something that is really, really interesting when you start thinking about those operations at scale. One of the fascinating things as well with seaweed is that it's actually used a lot in the world. Uh, we don't realize, but it's in many types of food and cosmetic products around us, which means that we didn't really have to start a new supply chain from, from scratch. We just work with people who produce seaweed extracts for ice creams or for all types of food. Like it's used a lot in dairy, even in beer. Um, so there is an existing kind of like knowledge and know-how about how to use the resource in a sustainable way. 
And obviously, like any human activity, you can always do it a good way or a bad way. But we want to use our buying power to make sure we work with the people who have the best like sustainability credentials so that we encourage the sustainable production of seaweed extracts as much as possible. Now, because this material you're using is biodegradable within, is it a few weeks or months? Yeah, so that's one of the fascinating things, again, with seaweed. It's extremely easy for nature to turn it into compost. So actually, on its own, it will biodegrade in like a normal environment in four to six weeks. But actually, in the office, we have a wormery, which is just like a, a bin with a few kind of like earthworms. And they will turn it into compost in 10 days. That's even faster than the peel of a fruit. So it really shows how worse come worse. As a human society, we fail to collect our waste and it ends up in the environment. Nature will have no issue dealing with that and turning it into the next plant or the next seaweed. With this in mind, I would assume that there's also a limited shelf life when they're used to contain food or liquid. So what is that shelf life when they're used as packaging and what sorts of applications has OHO and NOTPLA been used for? You're absolutely right. Our product has a short shelf life. And therefore, we've been really focusing on applications where there is instant consumption or uh, consumption within minutes. And I think this is very much a, a market we will focus on. So OHO is not the solution for everything. But in terms of shelf life, depending on what you put inside, because that also has uh, an impact on the shelf life, it can last between a few days and a couple of weeks. So this is the shelf life we're working with. And because this is very short, it doesn't really work with the traditional model of having a big factory producing and then putting it in like trucks and hubs and distribution channels and so on. So we have had to develop a new technology uh, for manufacturing that is based on local manufacturing. Mm. So the idea is to have production close to the point of consumption, which in a way is what happens to food like most of the food you buy on the go is produced very closely or it's cooked very lo locally to you. So our machines are about the size of a, a fridge uh, and they can produce a few thousand units a, a day. So it's not large production, but for a local area, this is plenty. And this is very much the model we want to go for. So uh, if we can produce things fresher and get them to you within days of them being produced, uh, there is additional value as well for the consumer. And obviously, this also reduces the transportation burden related with on-the-go products like bottles and so on. Um, so this is another win in terms of CO2 impact. So the way that you're operating your business is you're mostly focusing on selling your technology and this machinery to companies so that they can localize and create their own packaging for their own beverages, food, and etc. I'm wondering how have the companies you're trying to pitch this idea to responded because it's so new and it's so different. How has the bigger players in the beverage industry responded and how, how receptive have the consumers been in trying these beverage sachets out, given that this is also different than what people are used to with bottles? The response from the industry has been really interesting because at the beginning, there was a little bit of like wondering whether or not people were going to engage with such a different way to consume. But then after getting so much attention on social media, we've had some videos that got 100 million views. And I think that in the world of packaging and even in the world of like uh, consumer goods, these are really showing that people 
truly care about solutions like this. So uh, from that point, we had much more kind of like relevant conversations with big brands who saw that they actually could engage with us to try to like reduce the amount of packaging that they use. And from that point, we've had some really great collaborations with some big companies who have made very public reduction targets around plastic and are now struggling to reach those kind of objectives. And they see that they have to embrace slightly less traditional products and solutions. Not everything is going to be done through recycling. And so we are offering that kind of alternative to those companies. So usually what we've done is start small and try to really kind of like get confidence with, with the companies that this is working well. For example, um, the work we've done with Lucozade on getting to the London Marathon started with a couple of small runs, just bringing a hundred samples and getting some feedback from the runners, not trying to get any kind of like PR or marketing around it, but truly seeing what people would say if they were presented this product in a race. And then we kind of like worked our way from there and doing like bigger runs and bigger runs until eventually they were like, okay, we, we will be the, the sponsor for the London Marathon. Let's have one of our water station uh, fully done with OHO and let's see if at that scale we can actually deliver hydration to the runners. And for us, that was super exciting because that was one of our big, big milestones. If we can do the London Marathon, we've proven that this works at scale. And so I think that that was a very big tick for, for us to do that, that uh, race. And it also applies in other areas of our business. For example, one of the things we do is packaging sauces like ketchup or mayo for the takeaway restaurants. And we have a strong relationship with Just Eat, the takeaway delivery platform, mainly present in, in Europe. And uh, we've worked really closely with them to see how the restaurants could deliver the ketchup or mayo that they would put on the fries to their consumers. And at the beginning, we made lots of mistakes. We realized that lots of things were wrong. And we kind of like built on all of that knowledge to improve our solution until the point where we've run surveys and like 90% of people said that they wanted to see more of their sachets coming under that format. So really exciting both for them and for us. Mm. And, and I think it, it all, it all proves that the brands who are actually doing the most in that space will maintain their presence in, in, in their industry. The ones that are not engaging are taking a really big gamble in the future because consumers clearly want an alternative. And I think that like going plastic free is not just a trend. It's, it's truly like something that's going to be expected from the future. And so, uh, they've got to start being ready now with, with solutions that exist now. Plastic pollution has garnered a lot of attention, especially in the recent few years, which has prompted a lot of innovators to think of new solutions. And a lot of companies and restaurants now are shifting over to using bioplastics. And the issue I have there is that as of right now, most places don't have the proper composting facilities needed to handle these bioplastics that require industrial composting, which means that a lot of these industrial compostable forks, spoons, packaging, etc. may still be ending up in landfills or otherwise may be confused as plastic and tossed in the plastic recycling bin. And I know what you're doing with the NAPLA and the beverage sachets really bypasses both of these issues, but what are the differences between the bioplastics that require industrial composting composting versus the ones that are backyard compostable versus what you're making? 
This is a, an excellent point that I think a lot of people are very unclear about because there are so many solutions claiming to be the, the absolute kind of like answer to all, our, all of the problems that it can get quite confusing at times. And I think that the two problems you raised are the right ones to, to discuss. First of all, having something that is going to require a specific type of composting is creating a whole lot of issues in the waste management uh, industry. And for example, the most popular bioplastic, PLA, which is made from cornstarch, but requires a very kind of like high heat, uh, high humidity environment to start biodegrading. If you don't put it in such an environment, it will still stay in the environment for hundreds of years just like the regular plastic, it will break down into microplastic just like regular plastic. So it shows how important it is to have an equal amount of those kind of facilities as the amount of bioplastic we are putting on the market. And currently we are very, very far from that. So that's a big problem. The other one that you mentioned about contaminating the existing recycling streams, this is one of the big problems with, with PLA as well and with some of other bioplastics that they look so similar to uh, conventional plastics that when they get mixed in the recycling, a very small percentage of those can contaminate an entire batch of plastic. So actually they're doing more damage than they uh, are solving the, 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 the problem. When we try to explain how different are our materials from bioplastics, it's very simple. It's not plastic. And that's really where the name not mm -hmm. plastic comes from. It's just not plastic. Actually, our materials are polysaccharides. So they are made of sugar chains, just like the building block of most trees and plants and seaweed. So this is something that most bioorganisms can deal with. This is something that they can eat and turn into compost. And that's really where the difference lies. That being said, that also means that our materials have properties that are belonging to the world of natural materials. So they don't last as long. They don't protect as well. They are maybe more fragile. So that's why they don't apply to everything. But for the parts where they are actually doing a good enough job to replace plastic, that's really where we want to push our solution. And I think that as we move forward, there's, there's a really exciting range of natural materials that can really challenge plastic from mushrooms to uh, shrimp shells to results of fermentation. There's a whole lot of building blocks in nature that we can use for applications that require quick biodegradation. And I think that certainly seaweed has a role to play, but it's not the only material to be able to do that. Right. I was going to ask how you think we can address this lack of proper waste management infrastructure in place and also the mix-up of plastics and bioplastics. Do you think it's just about really experimenting with all of these alternative materials as you have? The way I see it, there's not going to be a silver bullet. I don't think that there's going to be one material that is ever going to have such a presence across many industries like plastic did. So it's going to have to be application per application. And there's going to be a lot of different solutions for different applications. I think that definitely we need to start by reducing the consumption that is not needed and reusing as much as possible things that are already made. And there's really exciting return schemes that are uh, popping up everywhere. And I think that they have a big part to play. I think that 
unfortunately, the disposable habits that we've built with plastic aren't going anywhere. We just got so used to them and it's really, really hard to kind of like force reuse everywhere because people aren't always carrying their, their bottle or aren't always thinking of what's going to happen. So whenever we need to have a disposable solution for on the go, that's where natural materials have a really good role to play. And I think that uh, this is something that is going to grow naturally very quickly. And then I think that recycling has a role to play, but much smaller than where everyone is kind of like seeing it growing. I think the problem with recycling is that currently it's the only solution that allows existing big companies to keep on dreaming of producing more because they can still use the same machines, they can still use the same materials. So it's the only option that is working for them in terms of growth. And they should stop thinking of that. Obviously, like they need to adapt with the new reality. But also, we know that recycling is really tricky to do several times. There's some exciting breakthroughs with chemical recycling, which is going back to the actual monomers of material and starting from a fresh batch. But most of the recycling is actually just mechanical recycling. And you just end up with all of the things that got mixed with the plastic in the first place. And it's really, really hard to make sure that there's nothing nasty in there for the next application. So I think that yeah, there's going to have to be so many more alternatives so that we can pick exactly the right one for each application. I really love this vision that there won't be one singular solution to addressing all of our plastic issues because whether in the past when I spoke to people focused on sustainable food production or creating more sustainable and renewable energy sources. Across the board, the common themes were that we really need to decentralize and localize these resources, and also that we need to diversify the resources as well, because that can also then support the biodiversity on our planet by not over-relying on any one specific resource. Looking at nature, this is exactly what nature does. There's, there's so many different fruits, there's so many different trees, all of them have a specific set of features that make them the, the right thing for the right place. And, and this is very much where we are heading. I think that with the ability to pick those materials, produce or transform them locally, we can ensure that we are minimizing the, the amount of like environmental impact we're creating. And I think that in a way, we've been distracted from natural materials because synth synthetic materials were so abundant and easy to customize by chemists for the past 70 or 80 years. But we have such a wide toolbox of things that are abundant and that are easy to cycle in nature. We've just got to like open our eyes and start learning a bit how to uh, readapt with these. Sometimes right now, as a consumer walking into a grocery store, it can be really hard to imagine the possibility of there not being any single-use plastic packaging that comes with our food, especially food that needs to be packaged for maybe hygiene, storage, and safety reasons. So do you think we're getting close to knowing how to make that come true? And what do you think it'll take for us to make that systemic and widespread transformation? I think we will see changes very quickly, I think that the amount of awareness that has been created, it's transla translating very quickly into changing business like attitude and therefore offering a wider range of alternatives. But also plastic is a very, very 
useful material. It's actually incredibly performant and it's kind of a wonderful material when you're using it in the right way. So I think that it's going to take some time to replace it in places where it's giving the most kind of like performances. And I think, for example, the whole medical industry is incredibly performant at being kind of like hygienic and, and, and preventing cross-contamination and all these kind of things because plastic is such a good barrier material. Um, so I don't think that like we're going to switch away from plastic on all these industries all of, a, all of a sudden. But I think that in places where it's easiest, there will be a lot of change and that will show to everyone that actually there is an alternative that is possible. It's not such a big problem to have your like your carrots in a plastic net rather than like in a in a paper bag or whatever it is and then from there it will just kind of like accelerate the transition i think that there's some exciting pilots of supermarkets that are really trying to be completely plastic free and and with all the like challenges that that are included uh but for many products actually They've kind of found solutions with bulk and, and, and with reuse. So those are going to be really good examples to replicate elsewhere. And, and I do believe that we will look at plastic like, like we look at uh, smoking cigarettes or not putting your seatbelt in the car. Like those, those days of like having plastic everywhere are going to be shocking in, in, a, in, a, in a few years. So um, it's just like happening right now. And finally, to wrap up, what is your recommendation for our listener in terms of how they can have the greatest positive impact, think outside the box to challenge our status quo, and to bring their visions to life as you have? There's lots of small things that you can do that might not have such a great impact, but are setting you in, in motion. Uh, I know that personally, like, uh, I use my reusable bottle, I use, uh, like, a soap bar rather than buying kind of like shower gel because that saves the plastic. There's, there's lots of little things that you can do like that. But I think that being part of a community of people who want change is probably the biggest action you can do. Being aware of what's happening in your community. Are there groups of people who are trying to organize themselves to like force some of those alternatives to become viable um, is really powerful. And I think that as we move forward, there's going to be more and more of those small choices you can do in your in your daily life. And and once it becomes a habit and you start thinking, oh, there is this option and like there's a bit less of plastic. Should I go for this? It becomes a second nature. And then it's very easy to, to kind of like empower the probably smaller brands or the entrepreneurs that are trying to push something that is slightly better and just giving them more business so they can grow and compete with the big guys.
What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow, or a book that's been really profound for you? This is not a drill at the Extinction Rebellion Manifesto. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I think that I try to do little kind of like creative projects on the side. Creating, I find, is a is is always a positive activity. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I'm not going too much to the gym, but I use Headspace. <laughs> What's one thing you're working on to elevate your your positive impact for our planet? Helping those kind of like local community projects、uh, when it comes to doing like actions and things like this. So trying to be part of the the local community. And what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment? The amount of people who care. And who kind of like show that they are not happy with the current situation. Green Dreamer. To learn more and stay updated on Pierre's work at Notpla, you can head to www.notpla.com. That's spelled N-O-T-P-L-A.com, and you can also follow them on Twitter and on Instagram at Notpla. I'll have all this linked in the show notes as well that you'll be able to find at GreenDreamer.com. Pierre, thank you so much for joining us today. If our listener would like to support the work you're doing and keep up to date on what you're up to, what cause to action would you like to share? The most support you can give us right now is by kind of like sharing the love on on social media, and we're working really hard to scale up the technology so that we can bring it to a location close to you. So be patient; it's a startup life, but it will will get there. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Let's not、uh, stop dreaming because everything is possible. <laughs>